the Mac Observer's Mac Geek app number 259 for Monday, May 3rd, 2010. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek app. It is May. It's hot. It's sweltering outside here in New Hampshire. It's not that hot, but it's uh, it's really? it's it's huh. like sticky and humid. It, we skipped spring. We went straight to summer. I'm Dave Hamilton here from uh, Durham, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, John F. Braun here in Fairfield, Connecticut, and uh, we're 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 at that balance point where yeah, it's not too humid, but it's not too cool. So. And we're getting some cool storms, too. Oh, that's good. Or yeah. not so cool. Yeah, I guess we're supposed to get something tonight. There's something coming in. But we're here now. The Skype connection's working. I believe we're recording. And, uh, uh-huh. you know, off we go. You folks will know if we're recording or not. Should we just dive right in here, John? Let's just dive right in. Dive right in. We got, yep. We got a bunch of questions to answer, a bunch of tips to share. And if there's time, we're actually going to do, uh, we've got a lot of stuff piled up in the cool stuff found category. If not, that'll be uh, first on deck for next week. So we'll see where we get. Kirk writes, I have a question for you guys regarding display sleep. I'm on a MacBook circa early 2008 running 10.63 with an external display running in extended desktop mode. Lately, I've come home from work to find my screensavers going. My display is set to sleep after 25 minutes. However, it appears that this does not ever happen. Instead, my screensaver will run indefinitely. If I disable the screensaver, the screen will never will still never shut off as it is set to. I try the usual usual suspects, zapping the PRAM, resetting the SMC, repairing permissions, reinstalling the combo updater, etc. Nothing's worked. I can't find anyone else with this particular issue either, which is strange. I'm also sure that it is not an external mouse triggering anything. My computer isn't set to wake on demand, and this problem persists whenever iTunes is open or not. There could be a renegade process running in the background, but my only guess, because it's the only thing that seems relevant, could be flux. I shut it off, and the problem continues. Sorry for being so verbose. I'm not, I know it's not an early, oh yeah, it's fine. Okay, Uh, so here we are. So this one was an interesting one, right, John? Uh, And and there's, 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 we know the answer because we've emailed back and forth with Kirk on this one. But mm-hmm. uh, but it's good to it's good to describe the path that uh, that we used to get there. So, uh, you know, my thought process on this, John, and, and chime in here. But, you know, it, it was that it, if the screensaver is going, then at some level, the Mac knows that it is idle. Right. The screensaver won't just kick in if the Mac thinks that you're doing something. So that's a good thing. Uh, and if it were a key piece of hardware that we're keeping mm-hmm. the Mac awake, like a rogue USB device or something uh, that would keep the screensaver from running, too. So. uh The initial thought was, well, let's make sure the Mac knows the settings that we think it knows. We look in system preferences. We look in the energy saver uh, pref pane and we see in there that, yes, you know, 25 minutes, the screen is supposed to sleep. But let's go ahead and see if that's what the Mac actually thinks. Or is there some uh, discontinuity between the user interface and what the Mac thinks? And so to do that requires going to the terminal, but it's not all that dangerous there. Uh, the The command that you issue in the terminal is PM set for power manager set. So P, uh, the, the letter P, P is in Paul, M is in Mary, S-E-T, all together, no spaces, and then a space. And then the first thing to do is issue a dash G. Uh, dash G will show you all of the current settings. And you have three, uh, I believe, three different profiles. You have a setting 
for when you're on a charger. You have a setting for when you're on a battery. And then you have a setting for if and when you're on a UPS. And the same goes for battery. It's if and when. If you don't have a battery, uh, you know, if you're not a portable machine, then that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't apply. But that will show you the current settings. And what you're looking for, it's going to show you a short list. And the setting that you're looking for is one called display sleep. And, uh, and in Kirk's case, that should read two five for 25 minutes. Uh, my advice then, even if it does read two five, is to change that from the command line to to, to really kind of set the system back uh, back at, at home. And so what we do is, again, using the PM set command, but this time we have to use sudo because it has to be done as a privileged user. You type sudo, S-U-D-O space PM set space dash A to set all and then space display sleep because that's the, the parameter we want to set space. And in his case, 25. Uh, you'll then have to enter your password because we use the sudo command and off it goes. This this will actually be up as an MGG answers article. This is a perfect candidate for uh, for those. So this will this is ready to go. Actually, it'll it'll go up uh, within the next day or so here. So that that's the first step. Now, uh, do you have anything to add here, John? I mean, I know we we've got a, we've got more to go on this one because this did not help Kirk. But uh, but worth you know. Breaking this no, down. it may help me because I may dive in because I'm having a similar issue. But but you are correct. I, I looked up, you know, on the screensaver and um, that time period. Yeah, is the time period after uh, of inactivity. So I would say that's strongly tied to some other sleep problems is that, yeah, as you said, the machine knows. Yeah, well, there's been this amount of inactivity, 15 minutes or whatever. So uh, I should go to sleep. Right, right. Okay, so uh, it, and and that and that's what uh, what Kirk did, and then it, he wrote back and he said, "I tried it. I even set it to one minute, and it still didn't work." And so our next piece of advice was, as always, John was. Do you remember? Uh, create a new user account. Oh, that that would that may work. Yeah, my my advice is always look at the console, uh, and and so oh. that's that's what I suggested to Kirk was was take a look at the console, see if anything pops up. You know that after a minute the system's supposed to go to sleep, so watch the console and see what happens. And and he did, and there was there was an app called uh, called iDrive. He said he found a stray uh, demon from iDrive out there, so he went uninstalled iDrive, reinstalled iDrive. And now everything is copacetic. So something must have been out of sync or, or not running quite right, but uh, uninstalling and reinstalling iDrive. But he never would have known to do that had it not been for looking at the console. And that it really, I, I know it looks, it looks like gibberish. Folks, most of that stuff looks like gibberish to us too. Uh, but really all mm -hmm. you're looking for is just something out there that you say, hey, wait, that doesn't look right. Uh, or, you know, something to say, you know, to, to nudge you down the right path. Uh, and in Kirk's case, of course, it, it works swimmingly. So, yeah, now I'm running into something similar and I don't know what caused it. So I'm starting to troubleshoot this as well. But yep. with my MacBook Pro and I know at one point in time, uh, you know, I would like set this machine up to play something to go to sleep to and the machine would sleep itself. So I know at one point this worked. Now, I don't know what I added or changed and I'm trying to diagnose it. But one thing I'm doing, as you suggested, Dave, well, the thing is. I didn't jump up. Uh, I didn't jump out with that one because I'm seeing little or nothing in my console. Uh, so I'll set it, you know, as suggested or, you know, put it to a minute. And then I wait a minute. The screen goes dim and I'm like, OK, but that part's working. And then the machine just sits there forever and ever and ever. Now, sometimes I saw a message in the console from uh, config D and it actually said config D power management config D system sleep prevented by blah, blah, blah. So as, as you're saying, 
uh, in some cases, now I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing this message anymore. So that's my problem here is that I don't see anything in the console. Now, most of these, I think, should be coming from the kernel. And if you want to you know, focus your search here, you could do that. I tried that, but then I tried all messages as well. Uh, you know, the next thing about kernel is that it gets archived. So you may be able to go back in time a little bit. And again, most of those messages I see are in kernel.log, which you can access uh, from the console utility. But I'm not seeing anything. And, and I've seen some console messages. Like some of them are, are pretty straightforward, like uh, sleep prevented by PCI. I've seen that. Yeah, you know, if, that's if you're right. in a desktop machine, it'll say, hey, this is the reason I can't go to sleep is because there's something on the PCI bus that said don't go to sleep. But I'm seeing nothing. Hmm. Um, in the console at all. I, I, I mean, I see other messages, but but it doesn't say, "Hey, sleep was prevented for for one or another reason." So I don't know if I don't know if I got a, if there's a way to enable a verbose mode or something. But it, it's starting to annoy me because you know I looked through the list. You know, we'll link to this article. Uh, you know, Apple has the article. Mac OS 10: Why your Mac might not sleep or stay in sleep mode, and it goes through a whole bunch of things that you shouldn't be doing. And as far as I can tell, I'm not doing any of them. I'm not watching a DVD. I'm not listening actively listening to something in iTunes. You know, I, I think my network connections are not active enough that would prevent the thing to go to sleep. Maybe that's another place to look. Do you have, uh, yeah, I, 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 I run into this here. You know, we've got a bunch of Macs on the kind of spread across the network, the house and the office, despite being physically separate are linked as, as we've gone through. And, and every time there's a lightning storm, we're reminded of, but, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but you, you know, we run we run into this where I have a machine, you know, like this one here in the studio should be asleep uh, unless I'm up here podcasting or Lisa mm -hmm. is up here working. But otherwise, you know, I want it to be asleep, but I want it to be sleeping and not off so that if I want to remote access in, I can. Right. Um, and sometimes I will find that, you know, a machine is just on. And what I'll notice is one or more other machines are attached to it, you know, from a, a network perspective. Maybe I've mounted a drive from this machine and that. It, it, at least in my experience here, will prevent it from going to mm -hmm. sleep. Uh, so if I have a terminal session open with it, that too will present it from go, prevent it from going to sleep. So there's there's different methods that the system uses to decide. Okay, uh, yes, I have some services running, but if no one's connected to them, it doesn't matter. Um, but in you know in some cases, so maybe maybe you've got something where your 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 machine thinks that. It needs it needs to be awake for whatever reason. Yeah, I was going down that path. Now, you may ask, how, how can I tell who is logged into my system? How, how can you tell who is logged into your system, John? That's actually a good question. I, I don't know that I know the answer to that. Well, I just gave it to you. Um, <laughs> oh, well. Uh, from the command line, yeah. terminal, type who. That won't show you file sharing, though. Right, right. But it does show you. It does show you logged in uh, terminal trying users. to cover. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, I, that came up in some of mine. It would say so. I see two of them. I see one console and I see another one. T T Y S zero zero zero. And in the past, it's complained about that. And I'm trying to figure why there's two logins. Okay, so if we're gonna get geeky and go to the terminal, we're gonna do this the right way. And mm. instead of typing who, I highly recommend you use the W command. Uh, and it'll show you a whole lot more. Uh, oh, it nice. shows you what they're doing. So you'll see, and it, it shows you whether or not they're active or idle. So you'll see that the console user is idle and has been for ever since you, uh, you logged in uh, mm -hmm. to that, to that user. So it does create your, your Mac, uh, what your, your, your finder session, your normal session is your console session. And then when you actually open a terminal session, uh, mm -hmm. that starts, uh, 
that starts with the S O O O or S O O one or or what have you. So okay, yeah. all right. Well, they there doesn't seem to be anybody extra logged in. Right. When well, that's when a I good check thing. this. Yep. Yes, <laughs> especially since yeah. I should really know about that. But that, but that's right. Yeah, if you use the W command and it says, you know, it'll tell you what the time is. It'll tell you how long your system has been up, or essentially how long since it was rebooted. Um, and then it'll tell you how many users and your your uh, one, five and 15 minute load averages uh, before displaying the user list. So if you see two, if you're at the terminal, you are the second one. You're, you're essentially logged in twice. And if you open another terminal window, you'll see three and another terminal window. And you'll it. see four. So, you know, I'm leaning towards right now and I'll, I'll have to take this path, but something maybe network based. Now, it could be Dropbox, though. I know it's not chatty if nothing important's happening. Yep. It could be syncing, mobile me syncing. Um, I'm running this carbonite thing. Actually, that's something I added recently. Oh, maybe that's it. I bet that's it. Could yeah. be. Though I disabled it and it didn't say, though maybe I have to do a more forceful. Uh, yes. <laughs> no, no. Well, not just turn really it off. Really disable yourself. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, and I think, uh, you know, that this came up with Kirk is the, um, you know, it was some error in process that, that kept running. And uh, so it could be that this, uh, I just got to find the carbonite messages and see if, you know, it's, it's always in the background going, hello, hello, I'm here, I'm here. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, you know, we had another question out here, John. If we're, Are we ready to move on to another question here? I think we are. But if anybody okay. has any tip, if anybody's gone down this path recently with a MacBook Pro. Yeah. And has any, uh, any suggestions? Yeah, it's just kind of annoying. I mean, yes, I can sleep the machine by, you know, doing it manually from the menu. But yeah, but that's not how it's supposed itself. to work, man. Exactly. Uh, I, I, it drives me crazy when my machines don't sleep. Um, so. All right. Next. Uh, so in a somewhat related uh, realm here, L.A. dude writes, I have a late 2008 MacBook aluminum 13 inch. I have the screen set to dim for set to dim after one minute. If I'm not doing this, it works okay and sleeps and dims. What I would like to do is leave the house and have the screen be totally black when I am exporting a movie that takes 10 hours to do. It's an HD video from my Sony HD Handycam and a Handycam, and I ex- export HD quality. If I dim the screen manually, I still see the iMovie interface a tiny bit if I look close enough. Is there any way to dim the screen so it's totally black when I'm exporting a long movie and iMovie? All right. So any of you with LCD screens, which are most of us, uh, there are two components to the screen. Well, there's far more than two, but we're going to break it down into two. Uh, There is the LCDs, the liquid crystal display, and then there's the backlight that uh, shines through those. Uh, But the crystals themselves uh, can still display an image even when the backlight's off. You just don't see it unless you happen to be in a room that's lit just properly to where the angle that you're getting from the light to you uh, reflects off of the screen. And you can, you can sort of see uh, what's going on on the screen, even if you set the backlight all the way to zero with either the dimmer or in LA dude's case, the, uh, the screen brightness. And that's what's happening is it's, it's setting the screen brightness down, but yeah, stuff appears on the screen. Uh, The trick would be to have something not appear on the screen or something appear on the screen that keeps other things from appearing on the screen. And my advice is use a screensaver. And I, I, I don't know that this will work, though, but the first thing I'd try is use a screensaver and set the screen to go to black with the screensaver and then 
uh, turn off the backlight. And I, 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 that may work, although the system may be smart enough to kill off the screensaver when it does the screen dimming. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Oh, yeah, we, uh, based on what we've seen, I think uh, if, if it's churning, the, that may not be considered idle. That's, that, hmm. no, That's no, 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 no. It definitely, it'll definitely go, uh, the screensaver will definitely come on. Um, and the, and the screen will go blank. Yeah, no, it's, it's, even if there's a process running, it will go idle from that standpoint because there's no user, uh, user interaction okay. that definitely works. You know, if I've got handbrake, handbrake running or something like that, it definitely, it'll do it. Um, but the, the question is when the screen then dims, does it turn off the screensaver <laughs> right. to save CPU cycles since there's nothing to, dis- you know, it, the assumption is you mm. don't care to see the screensaver if your screen is dim. Um, but that would be the first step. The second step would be, you know, open up a black window in a preview or something, you know, make a, make a black mm. screen, the full size of your screen, go full screen with it. And then, mm. and then let it dim from there. Uh, there's nothing, there's nothing to really to worry about with it. Uh, LA dude, but, but I, I get the, uh, I get the concern. And if it, if it is lit, if the room is lit such that you notice it, that can be a little, uh, yeah, maybe a little distracting. I don't know. I don't know. You got anything to add there, John? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember, you know, I remember this happening that there was a bug a while ago, a sleep or wake bug in a recent version of OS 10. Yeah. And it was funny because one of the symptoms was that if you tried to wake the machine, the thing is the machine would partially wake in that you could, as you pointed out, see something on the LCD, but the backlight wouldn't come on. I think it was a hardware based thing. Uh. I remember this because I'm like, wait a second. People are saying that the machine comes on and it's, and it's totally dead. I'm like, mine's not. Well, also because I could hear the hard drive making noise. I'm like, huh. Right. Yeah. There's other. And then, clues. Yeah. If you hold it at just the right angle, you can see that the screen will always have something on it. Yep. Yep. That's mm. how it works. I like that one. Yeah. yeah. I could see how. Yeah. In the in the right environment, you could it, see that. Okay. Yeah. In the in the wrong environment, as it were. Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's talk about our first sponsor today, which is Smile on My Mac with Text Expander. Now, Text Expander uh, is an app that you run uh, on your Mac. And it allows you to create typing shortcuts. So let's say you have something that you type over and over again. Maybe it's an email signature. Maybe it's a phrase that you use, like uh, like don't get caught, right? So what I could do is create a text ex- text expander snippet that uh, that every time I type DGC, it automatically replaces that with don't get caught. Makes life a whole lot easier. Uh, it gets a whole lot better when you've got, say, a multi-line mail signature that uh, that you want to insert and you do it. Uh, you know, they recommend or a lot of their examples preface your your uh, your your shortcut with a comma or something, because you'd rarely type comma and then not a space. Right. So you can you know be pretty sure that you're not going to get caught in a situation where you've you know you you want to type your acronym but you can't because uh because it keeps it keeps expanding it but uh so it it's an app for the mac uh you can download a free trial of course and then it's 35 bucks when you uh, when you want to use it and text expander 3 now has uh has new snippet creation tools and 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 new search tools the other thing they want us to talk about uh and we're happy to do so because it's very very cool is text expander touch text expander touch as you might guess runs on your iphone now uh of course, on the iPhone or iPad or iPod Touch, there is no way to affect the entire system like there is on the Mac. So 
Uh, what you do is you run Text Expander and you compose within Text Expander, and then you can blast that off to SMSs. Uh, if you want to have some shortcuts, like I'm running late or things like that, you can have them right there, and then it will go and and you know autofill your SMS with that or email messages. But there are many many apps out there that employ Text Expander snippets integration within them. One of them is my favorite Twitter app, Twitter pro uh, Tweety Two also does it also does it simply tweet. Does it to do does it uh, both to do's the T O D O and two D O uh, simple note. Does it. Uh, so the idea is once you've got text expanded touch installed on your iPhone, iPod touch or iPad, suddenly all these apps become text expander aware and they can get at your text expander snippets uh, from your text expander app. So when I'm in Twitter if I want to type Dave, uh, you know, I type dash D and then bam, it fills in Dave. Now, of course that, you know, only saved me two characters, but on the iPod keyboard, maybe that's not so bad. Right. You know, and, uh, and so you, you see where this can go. So a lot of these apps have done it. If you, uh, if you have a favorite app that doesn't, uh, you can tell the developer to go to uh, Smile on My Mac and, and they will uh, give them the API and, and work together on, on making that work. So this is Smile on My Mac. Text Expander for the Mac is 35 bucks. Text Expander Touch for the iPhone, iPad or iPod Touch is 5 bucks. And uh, all of that uh, you can get at SmileOnMyMac.com. Ready to talk about Robert here, John? Absolutely. Because oh. I think I, I think I got Robert figured out here. Awesome. Robert says, I'm a teacher and would like when my Mac opens in the morning at school for it to open a few saved files. Typically, I have a weekly plan and a what's happening at our school this week file to open. I've been putting pointers to these files in the login items of my account and they do open up. I have, though, been searching for a way to not have to change the login items pointer each week, but to have my Mac look in a specified folder, pick out the last saved file and open it. I've tried Automator, but could not find a construct or a script for this. I've also tried the excellent Hazel utility, but it will only do things in folders when triggered by events. Starting up is not a folder changing event. Do you have an idea? And John, I pass this to you. Yep. And I got it. Thank you. Right. Um, so uh, here's the way to do it. And I think, you know, I'm starting... I'm really starting to like Automator. The, you know, it came up with some fanfare when they introduced it. I think, you know, popularity with it fell off, or at least, you know, I didn't think about it for a while. And then as a lot of these questions are coming in about automation, um, and I figured, you know, it's freaking I, awesome, man. I, it's, I bet it's you. Cool. Yeah. Now, the thing is, you gotta, and I think that the difficulty here is that you, they cast their their workflow with a certain. I don't know, lens or, or thought. I mean, some, some actions are missing, but I figure something Definitely. as fundamental as this yeah. will be here. And, and that's one of the frustrations with Automator is that I think compared to Apple script, I think it's, it's, it's relatively, uh, it's, yeah, I don't think you get as much flexibility as with uh, Apple script. But then again, Apple script is, uh, you know, a language. Right. And, and to be fair, you can, you can trigger Automator to run Apple script if there's something you oh, need sure. to do that Automator doesn't have an action for. But but yeah, you're right. The idea behind Automator is I want to script all this stuff, but I don't want to actually do any scripting. So I just want to link it all together in my Automator and be done with it. So Right. But in this case, it absolutely has the um, has the features that you want to do this. I'm going to tell you how I did it. It, it right, was cool. pretty quick. It was two steps. Really? So one, when you open Automator, um, or at least this is the way that I thought it out. And I want to get yeah. your feedback on this. So 
Um, when you start up Automator, there's going to be a library folder and then a files and folders, which is basically the actions that you can take um, with files and folders uh, through the finder. You know, it shows a little finder icon. And here were the two that I put together, which does this just wonderfully. The first one is find finder items. What this workflow does is based on your search criteria, we'll find documents. And here's where I took a little liberty, but I think may bring up the... Um, uh, we'll, we'll do what you need. So I said search documents. So I'm going to assume a certain folder has the documents that he's concerned about. So it sounds like that, that it does. It, you know, he's got two different folders in it. The, at the, at the top, if you're sorted most recent, right? The top of right. each folder is the document that he wants to open. So yes. Right. Yeah. So uh, in this case, I said documents and then I said, all of the following are true. I guess you can also say any. And then what I said, Dave, and uh, so, you know, taking a little liberty here, I said, if date created is in the last, and then you can specify a time period. So here I did, you know, two or three days. Okay. All right. Okay. So yeah. that's number one. Yeah. Which so I for, think him, is for him, it might of- be if he's if he's there Monday through Friday, let's say, and the files created Monday of each week. If he says right. if it's created in the last six days, he's never going to overlap himself. Right. Right now, there's there are other criteria like sure. date created, date modified, thing like that. Uh, but but I think this, uh, and de- depending on how often he upstates them, he, he may want to choose a different one. But I thought date date created was was a good place to start. Yeah, that's good. So as you said, uh, and then the next step, which is also in the files and folders library uh, library of functions, is called open open finder items. So basically oh, what wow. happens is find finder items takes as an input, a folder applies criteria and what comes out of it. And you can kind of see this visually when you run an automator script yeah. is basically you put the, and basically the next step I'm here. Okay. Well, whatever's coming out of find finder items, which should be a set of documents that are created within the last two days. The next step is open them in the finder. Yeah, that's right. And, and by, opening them the, by opening them in the Finder, it will then trigger whatever app created them or is set to open them because that's um, how Mac OS X works. And I said here, open with default application. So, for example, oh, and actually when I ran really? this, and actually when I ran this, um, yeah, so the elegance behind this, you know, it, it, the, the only thing, again, is I'm just lucky that they expose these Finder features. Because this right. works perfectly. Because actually, I had to go through my documents folder. Uh, I created, I think, three documents within the la- that, that were two days, uh, you know, created within the last two days. And it opened one in TextEdit, and I think another in Adobe Reader, and I think a third in Preview. It was a graphic. But it, it, it kind of shocked me first. I'm like, oh my gosh, it, it was smart. I, I think actually in one of them, it actually digged into a folder. Yeah. Um, oh, right. So I think it recurses also. Okay. Okay. So I think it actually reached into a folder within my document folder and found a document that was fairly new. So oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah. So, so it sounds it, like for Robert, he, it, the simplest thing, though it may be more elegant to do it as one automator action, the simplest thing would be to create two actions one that points at one folder, one that points at the, the second folder, and basically both do the same thing. Uh, and that should do it. Sure. And then you uh, write it out. I think the best way is to write it out as a application. Yeah. Script, just, a scripted application or something. There's a, yeah, but you're right. You write it out as a standalone application. That's right. Right. You can also make it a workflow, which, which hooks in other parts of the system, but, but, but that's not appropriate for this. Uh, no. Login items. I think from what we've seen, Dave can take three different arguments, I think. So one can be, as we've discussed a file. And if the file is there, it's going to launch the app that 
belongs right. to that file, I believe. The next is, of course, an application, which is why I, I suggest you make an automator programmer application and not yep. a workflow. And then the third thing I think we've seen, Dave, and this is the, not intuitive, but kind of handy, um, is if I think you do an alias to a network uh, location, it'll it'll try to hook up to it if, if you put that in your login items. Actually, you don't even need to do an alias. You just, I mean, it... it by, or by, volume. by nature of what login items does, it creates its own aliases, but you just drag the, the, the network volume or folder. And that, that goes right. for a local folder, too. If you have some folder that you just want opened up, you know, a finder folder, maybe your documents, maybe a, a special folder inside your documents, whatever, or a folder on a network volume. But if any of those things are true and you want them open when you start your Mac, you can just drag them in uh, and it will pop that open for you. Uh, unless you click the little hide checkbox, in which case. I don't think it will because that's not yeah. what it's supposed to do. So, so I think that using login items is the best way to approach this. Now, there are other ways, Dave, which I think get, uh, and I don't know if I'd recommend any of these for an application like this, but you know, there, there's, you know, startup items and launch agents and daemons and all that. Uh, but, but that gets, uh, yeah, you know, why? usually Occam's razor. Yeah. 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 The simple yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that another time, but, but, but there are uh, ways that are more hooked into the, you know, inner right. workings of Unix to, to launch, you know, things that are automated. But, but I think for this and most purposes, I think that's why we summarized all the things you could do through login items. I think that's uh yeah, for something like this, that's, that's the way to go. Yeah. That's ah, oh, That's awesome. I love it. Awesome. I'm, I'm so glad that we got you on the automator thing. This is great. This is good. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's go to Ed here. Hey, Dave and John, this is Ed from L.A. I've heard you guys talking about Dropbox a lot lately. I use it myself to keep files in sync between my iMac and my wife's MacBook. Recently, I, I tried to add a Quicken data file to the Dropbox so that I can access it while I'm on travel using my wife's uh, MacBook. However, when I tried to open the file from the MacBook, I got an error. Could not open file. I saw some blog posts that talked about Dropbox having trouble with package files, and thought I'd check it, and the Quicken data file is a package file. Do you know how to solve this problem, or do you know anything about this? Anything you can do would help. Thanks for your help, and this is where you cut me off. All right, Ed. Uh, so here's here's the something interesting about Dropbox for the Mac. Uh, Dropbox for the Mac will happily handle package files. In fact, as as uh, our esteemed Mr. Braun uh made clear to yeah, me I was when, scratching my head over that when I heard this. Yeah. Well, yeah, because we pass a package file back and forth with, with Dropbox every week. It, it happens to be a real text document or an RTFD file, right? A rich text document uh, that has, uh, it doesn't usually have images, but it often has audio files. In fact, Ed's mm -hmm. file was just played out of it. So, uh, so clearly Dropbox works to sync that stuff where the current release of Dropbox for the Mac has a problem is with files that use resource forks. And as I What's discovered a resource fork, Dave, well, uh, let, uh, let me, let me, let me just squeeze one thing in and then we'll answer that question. Uh, the, as I discovered, uh, as Ed did, Quicken relies on a package, which is fine. That has files that contain resource forks, which is not fine. And we'll explain why in a minute. Uh, and that is what Dropbox was not syncing. So what is a resource fork, Mr. Braun? Well, I was asking you. <laughs> uh, well, we can uh, let, let's go back. We could we could bounce back and forth. Yeah. But, but but this was something that I don't think Apple started, but it was a way back in the early days of developing file systems for the PC and Mac that um I think Apple well, started it, didn't they? 
Um, I think they got inspired by Xerox, like a, oh, a lot of other things. Oh, but okay. but I think, yeah. but I think it was a way of of uh, so one way of representing a file is to just write everything out and maybe have a three letter extension, and that was popularized by DOS and CPM and stuff like that. Now another thing people came up with is you know what? Maybe I can separate you know pieces of a document or whatever. And um, and, and one thing that Apple came up with was a. a way where you had these two forks in a file. One was, I believe, the data fork. That's right. And then the other was the resource fork. And I think the data is, and it implies the data. And then the resource fork is is something that contained, I think, more sophisticated, more richer types of content, like graphics and, and sounds and fonts and, and all this stuff. And I guess at some level, it made some sense to kind of separate these. Of course, you may it, remember, it was, a, it was a package. It, it was a, a package file, but different from the packages that we know of in OS 10 today. But it, it was a, yeah. a all self-contained file. And, and like John said, you might want to have pictures embedded in your application or whatever. And so you just put those in the resource fork and then you could easily put them there, remove them, and you didn't have to worry about, well, where am I going to put this when I compile the app? And do I have to have support <laughs> files and all that? It was all self-contained. It was really quite a thing of beauty, I thought. Um, but yeah. non-standard the, in, in that when you're copying true. from one, you know, if you copied to a Windows system, they just like, well, what do I, hmm, I don't know what this is. You know, I don't use this stupid stuff. So, yeah. And I remember that would actually cause a lot of headaches for a lot of uh, platforms. And I remember some tried to deal with it, like some of the email programs like Notes and all that yeah. would either say, uh, uh, this is one of these stupid Mac files. Do you want me to include the resource fork And when you're sending it to this PC guy? And it's like, yeah, there's so many issues with that. But it, it was kind of visionary. Uh, the cool thing, if you remember, Dave, was this little program called ResEdit. Oh, yeah. And this just created so much fun for so many people because you could easily get into an application and mess around with the graphics and the sounds and, and all of the, the you know, pieces that made it cool. Yeah, it was it was actually pretty cool. If you had an app that made like, it, you know, like the, the, the classic example is the AOL app. Right. You know, back in the old days when it made it to you got mail sound, you could I, I believe I remember digging into the resource fork to pull that you got mail sound mm-hmm. out. And of course, you could replace it with your own sounds and do mm-hmm. funny things. Uh, not at all dissimilar to what we do with packages today. It's, it's a similar concept, but uh, it was just implemented in a different way. So, yeah. All yeah. Right. And a package is uh, and actually I've noticed this, Dave, I've seen this on occasion now. The, the thing is, is that resources, if you look in your console every now and then an offending application will write something on the resource work. But I actually saw one the other day and it actually says file access by slash RSRC was deprecated in 10.4. What does this mean? This means 10.4, anything beyond Mac OS 10.4, you shouldn't be using this stuff. So it yells at you if you try to. Right. Right. But there are still some apps and Quicken uh, 2007, which is what Ed's using, which is the still the most current version of full-blown Quicken for the Mac, uh, if we don't count Quicken Essentials. And we have some comments about Quicken Essentials sort of wrap up that conversation in a minute. But uh, but it does rely on resource forks, and Dropbox does not sync them yet. Thankfully, though, uh, Dropbox is well into its... Uh, the released version of Dropbox for the Mac is version 0.7. So, yes, it's not even a 1.0 yet. It is 0.7. Uh and that does not support resource forks, but they are well into their beta of 0.8. And it is a public beta at this point. Uh, and you can go and download uh, that from forums.dropbox.com. That will get you into the forums there. 
and or into there, you, you'll see a link at the top of the forums for the latest beta. And it's both for Mac, Windows and Linux, actually. Uh, but, you know, obviously you want to download the Mac one. The one thing and it does, it works fine. Ed replied uh, that that this has solved his problem. But uh, but one thing I will mention is if you're going to get involved in the Dropbox betas, make sure you don't have to be overly obsessive and update every day. Uh, they usually don't update every day, though. Sometimes they do. But I would say definitely once a week, go and look and update your app because they are actively fixing bugs and, and fixing things. You want to make sure that you've got a backup of your Dropbox folder at all times anyway. But uh, but especially if you're using beta data, beta not beta data, beta software. Uh, I've, I've done it many times. I used the, I did the point seven beta with them. And then of course I, I'm, I'm doing the point eight beta because, uh, because I like some of the things that it does in addition to this, but, uh, but just be careful, you know, sa- save your data somewhere else. So you're not too worried about it, but, uh, but that's the magic answer. So, all right, uh, let's move on and, and uh, let's play a couple of these quick in comments here. We, we talked about it and we've, we've had these queued up for a little while and this seemed like as good a time as any to, to uh, share some 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 of your comments about Quicken, I ranted quite a bit about it uh, on on my side and and wanted to share. Hey guys, this is Jed. Um, I am calling in response. Oh, I forgot the number. The latest uh, discussion about Quicken Essentials, um, and I am not one of the people who is going to rail against it. Although I don't think it's for all. And I think the reason I'm calling is because I love it. And I know why, which is that I've been a Quicken 2007 user, 2005, 2001, I don't remember. And I've actually simplified my finances throughout the year. And so it's really good if you want to just check, log in, have it log in your bank automatically, download your stuff, and double check and then be all set for tax time. And nowadays, that's all I use it for. And Quicken 2007 couldn't log into Citibank. Maybe it can for you. Uh, for you, Dave, but uh, I know for me, it never logged in, so I had to do the download transactions and put them in, and it just was another step that was a pain. So, 2000, uh, Queen Essentials is the best way I would say to look at it is Mint. It's Mint on a Mac. Um, it was, if I'm not mistaken, you know, the guy who designed Mint now worked on this version because I know Quicken bought it. And I think. That's really the best way to look at it. It's a little, it's, it's definitely stripped down. It's not for everybody. But I actually think uh, some 2007 users may like it. Cool. Thank you, Jed. Uh, and yeah, I've, for years, I've never had trouble with Quicken and, uh, and Citibank. But, uh, but it, you know, we may be trying to log into different, different types of accounts there. So, all right. So that's, that's Jed. Uh, I wanted to share what Chadwick had to say. Hey, John and Dave, this is Chadwick from Columbus, Ohio, just listening to episode 248. Um, I believe that's what it was, and you were discussing quick and essentials for Mac, um, and you had the one caller who called in and was um, very uh, you know, disappointed in the features that it lacked, and then you went on to say how this was probably just the beginning of moving in the right direction. And I've got a, you know, a, <clears throat> my experience with this, from my perspective, even though I, I would consider myself a, a, a power user on the Mac, I'm definitely not a power user when it comes to finances. And uh, Quicken Essentials has been a godsend for me. I was using Quicken 207 uh, or 2007 um, for uh, you know the last few, few years under Rosetta, and it was just 
bogging down slow. There were times when I was um, importing my transactions from my bank that it would take every transaction that I would enter and have to adjust was taking, you know, six to eight seconds, um, which doesn't sound like a whole lot until you're entering 20 or 25 at a time and you have to just wait there for the spinning beach ball. And so this, this transition to Quicken Essentials um, has been fantastic. I love the things that they're offering because for me, I don't do investments. I don't do check printing. I don't do um, those things that uh, the, the previous caller was suggesting. Someday I may get into that as they add it in, but for now it's a simple uh, keep track of my transactions, show me a budget and, and pie charts and reports, and all of that is working beautifully. So I think they're moving in the right direction. I'm excited about the future, and uh, I, I just wanted to encourage anybody who doesn't have a need for some of those uh, more advanced financial uses to go ahead and give it a shot because it's been great. All right, you guys have a great show, and uh, we'll talk at you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, Chadwick. And uh, and one last thing from Fred. Fred wrote, uh, since Quicken Essentials for Mac doesn't do everything I need, what about using the newest Quicken for PC with Crossover? And uh, indeed, if you go to Crossover's website, and we can put a link out there for the uh, for the crossover, Dave. Thing. What is Crossover? First uh, off, so Crossover uh, does support Quicken 2009 Premiere uh, for Windows, and what Crossover does is it uh, is based on the Darwine project, I believe, and it allows you to run Windows apps. Without Windows, Wine is a self-referential acronym, I think is, is officially what it is. And Wine stands for Wine is not an emulator. It does not emulate Windows. You don't run Windows. What it does is it takes all those Windows toolbox calls. So when a Windows app says draw a window, uh, what Wine does is it says, ah, OK, I know how to draw a window on the Mac and I'm going to go ahead and do that. Uh, so, and actually I guess it uses X windows is, is really what it's doing there. So it's not going to okay. quite like so, the Mac, but, but so you, well. so the, so the upside, I think of something like that, but I know what it is. Of course I was just, yeah, no, a little bit, yeah. but, um, but, but I guess the benefit, uh, if you see it as a benefit is that you don't need a windows license because there is no windows and there's no viruses, right? You're uh, not, you're not good point. You're, you're just making API calls. So unless those have inherent, the, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're no, I see what you're saying. No, yeah. it, it, you're absolutely protecting against, you know, intimate access to the machine because there is no machine or operating system access. It's just saying, oh, I know how to draw it on this side and that side. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking if somebody was really clever, if they, you know, transcoded, you know, they, they you know, I mean, I remember TCPIP had you know, bugs for, for right. ages because right. everybody kind of wrote off of the same code base and didn't think, oh, you know, that's a bad thing to allow. But yeah. everybody did right. at one point. But but I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, the, the chance of getting a virus through something like Crossover or Wine is like, a, to me, nearly impossible. Yeah, yeah. No, so that, that definitely work. And there's a lot of people that do that. Uh, that, that, that. In fact, that's probably one of the most common reasons that people go ahead and get crossover uh, and this is from code weavers uh, at codeweavers.com but the, the reason that right. they get it is for this one feature to get quick and so, uh, for pc on their on their mac so. so if anything it says that at least they know how to code for windows yeah that's right yeah there you go <laughs> I'm, I'm not taking any swipes because i i don't use either product so right right no there you go so i just wanted to share the uh the other the flip side of that if you were on the fence there there are some people out here who who really do see a, a benefit in it and uh and so that's a good thing 
Uh, our second sponsor for this show is Circus Ponies with Notebook version 3.0. Now, Notebook's a pretty cool program. What you do is if you have things that you need to organize, data you need to collect, instead of just having a folder where you're storing maybe a PDF of this and maybe a, you know, a Word document that describes the project you're working on and then you've got some text in another file, what you do is you fire up Notebook, and you you create and save a notebook for whatever that particular project is. Then you just start dragging things into it like a PDF, like a picture. Uh, you can pull a fax in and then it can scan that fax internally to the program and turn it into editable or copyable text. You can, of course, type, uh, as you might guess, into a notebook. So and you can create multiple pages where you've got things organized and then you can use Multidex to search. Multidex is their search feature. You can use it to search throughout your entire notebook to find what it is you're looking for. And you may be looking for something that you maybe brought into the notebook on a certain day. Well, you can search by date. You might have tagged it with a keyword, which you can do, and you can then search by those keywords. So you search for what you remember about what you're looking for, and it will find it for you. So this is all available in Notebook version 3.0. Of course, uh, you can download a free trial from circusponies.com, and then you can, uh, once you're hooked, you buy it. $49.95 US for a standard license. If you're a student and lots of students and teachers love to use this program. Uh, but if you're a student, you can save 20 bucks and get it for $29.95. Uh, and then if you want a family pack three user license, uh, it's $99.95. So essentially you're saving money on uh, on one license there. So uh, this is Circus Ponies Notebook from CircusPonies.com. Time to, uh, where, how are we doing on time here, John? I, I don't even oh. have the, the clock up. We're at the 45 minute mark. Um, well, let's do the tips. It's good to get some of this stuff out. We may not I, make it to cool stuff found, but. Uh, well, I like the first one. The first tip. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll do We can make it through all the tips. I'm sure of that. I'm sure of that. So we, we talked recently, John, about uh, whether or not you could upgrade a, uh, a MacBook Pro and put a new hard drive or put new RAM in. And uh, and we actually got a lot of email responses on this. We've talked about it briefly in the show, but Bill Bill does a great job of of enlightening all of us. So, do you want to do? Did you have something more you wanted to say as prep, John? Well, the only prep is that this was uh, in part I brought this up because a friend of mine who purchased a new MacBook Pro, seventeen inch, you know, pre i five i seven, all that stuff basically had multiple people who represented Apple saying you cannot add RAM or you cannot put in the uh, hard drive or RAM by yourself or you're going to avoid the warranty. And and when he said that to me, it just didn't sound right. Now, the piece of evidence that I found, you know, kind of backing that up is that there was an article or still is an article on Apple's site basically saying, you know, if if it's uh, what we consider a customer replaceable part, and I guess that's where interpretation comes in, then it's not voiding your warranty if you replace it. Uh, but then um, then you and I got in a discussion, well, what do you consider you know, replaceable? I mean, you know, and then, then we speculated maybe unscrewing all the screws on the bottom of the unibody machines is, is not considered a user action. Right, right. And that's where we get to Bill. And that's where, <laughs> that's perfect. Oh, yeah. Greetings, Mac Geek Gap. Bill here from Menlo Park, California. On Mac Geek Gab 254, you all were discussing whether or not upgrading your MacBook Pro yourself by installing more RAM or changing out the hard drive 
would void the warranty? The answer is no. However, if you screw anything up, whatever you screw up isn't covered. It says in the MacBook Pro manual, Apple recommends that you have an Apple-certified technician install replacement drives in memory. doesn't say it's required. And it notes that if you attempt to install a replacement drive or memory and damage your equipment, such damage is not covered by the limited warranty on your computer. It then goes on to give you detailed instructions on how to take off the bottom of the MacBook Pro, how to get out the old RAM, how to put in the new RAM, how to take out the old hard drive, how to transfer the mounting screws to the new hard drive, how to put in the new hard drive and connect it up. It also has a note that the MacBook Pro's battery is not user replaceable. <laughs> yeah. So the battery is not user replaceable. The hard drive and the RAM are. And you're not going to void your warranty, but the warranty is not going to cover it if you screw up anything else inside. Basically, it's how confident are you in your technical abilities? I did it on my daughter's MacBook Pro when it was brand new because I wasn't going to pay Apple's price for RAM and hard drive upgrades. It's not difficult. So go for it. Unless you're really a technophobe. Don't worry. I won't get caught. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. So uh, thanks for the audio production. Thank you for the information. Both were uh, one was valuable. One was informative. One was entertaining. And you can uh, apply them to all three. So there you go. So actually, so I guess the conclusion is my friend was being misled. By Sounds the like employees it. who stated this. Sounds like it. Because yeah. it's funny. I actually followed up with him uh, shortly after, you know, we, we first discussed this. Yep. Or, or I started getting the emails from people and I verified yep. because I looked at the manuals people sent me. And Dave, you would be asking, how do I get to the manuals at Apple.com? How do you get to the manuals at Apple.com? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> Support.apple.com slash manuals is the section of the Apple website where you can get manuals for anything. And Dave, we should have RTFM, which means, well, read the manual, read the fine manual. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> or F may stand for something else depending on. Uh, yeah. Uh, but anyways, that's where all the manuals are. And, and I was surprised to learn this. So uh, yeah, it's, it's too bad that, but, but when I wrote an email to him and he's also named John and I said, you know, by the way, they, they kind of, you know, misled you he's like oh yeah i just ignored them and i installed it anyways <laughs> excellent brilliant so he probably what he did is he probably rtfm yeah and he found the section saying well here's how you do it because i i led him in the right direction i said well you know based on what i've seen it, it, you know on ifixit.com and others it's basically you take 10 screws eight to 10 screws off of the bottom of the machine and the cover comes off and, and they're right there yeah and he's like all right yeah and, and you know he's he's another software guy like me with enough hardware knowledge to to not instantly destroy something um or knows to do the right thing right so right i think that closes that chapter but thanks so much for everybody who wrote in and 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 again told us to you know check out the manual sometimes um yeah i'm surprised because that's the first time i think i've ever seen any apple you know unibody or other product where they actually recommend uh, uh, on on the other hand looking at it i mean it looks like yeah they kind of designed it this way yeah they did yeah absolutely to make it accessible, but not quite as accessible as like, you know, the tie book or, or some of the other machines that well, for you some and I've seen stuff, in the past. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, they more seem to accessible. oscillate. Yeah. Yeah. 
They yeah. seem to oscillate. Like like uh, the PowerBook uh, G4 12-inch, dude, that machine was a nightmare to get into. Yep. Yep. So, you know, uh, Bill mentioned something that that triggered a, a memory here for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talked about the i5 and i7 MacBook Pros. And in a I think in uh, I forget the number, but in one of the premium shows that we did during uh, during April, uh, we discussed these new processors and we sort of got hung up because we we hadn't really done any research, of course. So we stopped and we said, we'll revisit this topic about what these new processors mean. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, the iMac, you know, we knew about the the i7 uh, and the i5 from the iMac prior. And the mm-hmm. i7 in the iMac actually had, um, what, four cores per processor, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, the i5 has two cores per processor, similar to the Core 2 Duo. Well, for the MacBook Pro... Intel and Apple are using a different chip than they are in the uh, in the uh, in the in the on the IMAX. And, and it was our discussion that actually triggered our own John Martellaro to dig into this and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, because he emailed me. He's like, oh, here's what it is. I five four four threads, you know, or four processor, four cores. I seven, eight cores. And I wrote him back. I'm like, no, they're not all that way. And that's and. And and he's and he's right. Uh, well, he's he he was right in terms of the iMac, but on the MacBook Pros, both processors are effectively the same. Uh, and I say effectively, uh, there there are some differences. So each processor can run two. Each processor has two cores uh, in it. However, the um, the uh, the uh, they have what's called hyper threading. And so they can run two threads per core. Now, hyperthreading isn't quite the same, uh, isn't nearly the same as multiple cores, but it does allow you to to send multiple instructions to the to the same core. So both processors can run four threads because there's two cores in each processor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you got four threads on either the i5 or the i7. The uh, as John points out, and there's an article I'll, we'll link to, uh, the only significant difference is that the i7, the portable version of the i7, has slightly more level 3 cache, for 4 megabytes versus 3 megabytes, mm-hmm. and it can turbo boost to a higher clock speed. Uh, the i5 uh, at 2.4 gigahertz boost turbo boost to 2.9, and the i7 mm-hmm. at 2.6 can turbo boost up to 3.3. Uh, the good news is, of course, that they use uh, they only generate 95 watts of heat, whereas the i7 in the iMac uh, generates 130. So, uh, right. so it was, it was the right move to make. But, but yeah, I wanted to make that clear that these are four thread processors, two cores, two threads per core with hyper threading. And to me, Dave, that's a finger wag at Intel because you and I were both working on information that we knew was true of the desktop processors. Right. Right. Um, so I kind of, you know, to give the same family name i5 or i7 and then to uh, to me that's uh i don't know if we're gonna you know go to court over it but but it seems to me a bit misleading because uh, i think they should well hey it gives us a job right yeah (laughs) we we get to we get to unravel their their web and and uh to put what you said in perspective i think the thing is we've seen things migrate from multi-processor 
yeah like my lovely g5 here which is truly multi-processor it's two independent processors then we started getting to the multi-core thing which is almost the same i would say except for some shared resources i would say multiple core is as good as it's going to get in, in this day and age with, you know, cost constraint, you sure. know, uh, bang for the buck. Sure. It, it's, it's as good as, uh, and then the hyper threading. And, and it's funny because uh, I remember setting up a, uh, uh, sled, SUSE Linux, uh, enterprise machine yep. at work. And, and it had one of the atom boards and it was funny because once I installed the operating system and, uh, you know, dug into some of the, utilities i went to one that actually showed processor stats and it said hey you're on a dual core machine i'm like um no because i i know i bought right. this board i looked at the specs this board was a single core atom processor but however it, it did have exactly yeah so as i read up on it and the thing is some os's and i think a lot of tools and and this is a potential point of confusion if you're using um you know iStat menu which yep. yeah i got the new version dave um <laughs> Or menu meters or something like that is the, uh, I think what they do is they go by what the OS reports, which I think is the number of threads, threads that can be run. Typically, a thread is a process and only one can be handled by each core, though the hyper threading kind of change that, changes that a little bit. Right. Yeah, and and uh, I noticed the same thing on my daughter's uh, the the Dell uh, the Mini 10V uh, that we have for her is that you know iStat came up and said oh yeah you got two you know they, they, they reported two somethings it's like uh no and then I realized it was hyperthreading mm. hey, the interesting thing is hyperthreading predates uh, multi core processors at least in terms of yes. what you can get in in consumer machines we had. We had hyperthreading uh, available on at least a lot of the servers that we were getting back in the day. You get, like you said, John, you get a, 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 a two processor machine, two completely separate processors. And then within each processor, each could, you know, hyperthread out to, you know, maybe two or whatever. And it makes a difference, you know. So, so but it's interesting to see because, you know, this is one of the reasons I think that Apple kind of divorced IBM was that they could never deliver a decent portable oh, that was it yeah processor I, I think that's what finally drove the two apart is yeah, that's that what bit, they said yeah is power pc was like yep we're a you know server processor and we're really not interested where obviously intel is uh yeah. doing the right thing i mean they're yeah. they're you know getting it i mean it's hyper threading instead of you know quad core but still you know well it's low power i mean right they, you know, you've got to make a I, I i don't fault them for doing this i fault them for the confusion in the, oh, name, the terminology the terminology yeah. yeah yeah so all right uh let's uh last week we talked about uh, someone who wanted to share and sync their safari bookmarks among multiple macs and so many of you wrote in and said john dave you missed it and uh, Todd, mm -hmm. thank you, Todd. I, I, we picked out Todd's comment here. So, hey guys, this is Todd from Kenosha. I'm listening to Mac Geek Geb 257 with the uh, caller's question about how to have access to their Safari bookmarks on any computer. Have you uh, checked into xmarks.com? This is an awesome syncing program. It's free that will allow you to sync between uh, Chrome, Safari, Firefox, nearly anything. And one of their features is that they allow for, um, they have an online service. So you just log into your xmarks account on their website and all of your, all of your bookmarks show up there. Check it out. It's worth checking. This is where you cut me off. 
All right. And you're cut off. Thank you, Todd. Uh, and uh, and Connor, you know, let's just play Connor's comment here because uh, he's got some background to this. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys, this is Connor P. Recently uh, on, I believe, episode 257, uh, a listener asked if there was a way to sync bookmarks between browsers. And the best way I know how to do it, and I'm actually rather surprised that you guys didn't know this, there is a browser plugin called Xmarks. Uh, in a previous life, it was Firefox only and was called Foxmarks. Yeah. But Xmarks now works uh, across every, just about every browser under the sun. So IE, Firefox, Chrome, and Safari on both Windows and Mac. And it will sync all of your bookmarks between all of your different browsers. In addition, you can, at least I'm pretty sure you can go to some URL like my.xmarks.com, log in with your Xmarks account, and then access your bookmarks right there on, on the web. And then what I do is I've got all my bookmarks syncing between my browsers, including Safari, and then mobile me takes care of syncing my bookmarks uh, um, between those Xmarks browsers and to my iDevices like my iPhone and my iPad. Uh, hope this helps. It this does. Is where you cut me off. Thanks, Connor, and thanks, Todd, and thanks everyone for for this. Yeah, you know, I I remembered uh, the uh, Fox Marks, and uh, you know, I never realized that they they'd taken it to the next step and uh, and done it with Safari, which is which is great because it it does allow you to do this. And actually, having your bookmarks sync between Firefox and Safari is actually a very handy thing too. Nice. So, yeah, yeah, and I believe it's they both said right, it's free, so uh, you know you can't go wrong. What infuriated me, Dave, is I found an article on Apple's site called .Mac to Mobile Me Transition FAQ, Frequently Asked Question. And they had a question. Were any other .Mac features affected? Oh, by the way, as part of the transition to Mobile Me, some features were discontinued. Web access to bookmarks, which was like one of the coolest features. And then the other things they whacked, which I don't really care about, iCards, yeah, whatever, .Mac slides, and support for Mac OS 10.3 synchronization. Right. I'm like, you know, you can throw all those others away, but why did you get rid of universal access to bookmarks? I mean, they did it properly. Yeah. Why did yeah. they even get rid of that? Because, you know, I got to suspect it's buried somewhere. And I don't know if you want to go down this path, Dave. We can go down I got to imagine. Path. Okay. Because I was questioning this. I'm like, you know, thinking, you know, I mean, Apple a lot of times does a good job of hiding the complex from you and making it simple, which is nice. Right. Well, I'm wondering, you know, somewhere in the cloud, because I use mobile machines and I sync my bookmarks, somewhere in the mobile me cloud or .Mac or whatever you want to call it, is that file, whether it's an HTML file or a plist file. And my question is, where is that? What if I wanted to get right to that file, not on my local machine, right? Or but in the cloud somewhere? How, how do you even get to that? And okay, I, I didn't spend enough time or Google foo on this, but uh, but but if you know something, Dave, which I think you do, I'd, I do. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, cool. I learned a lot about mobile me when I was having all kinds of syncing problems. Uh, so the idea is in it's it's all stored on your iDisk with a caveat, and it's it's you can see it if you go to your iDisk, you go to the library folder. This again on your iDisk. This is, I want to make that clear iDisk, library folder, application support, sync services. And then in there, there's there's two folders, I believe. Uh, actually, there might be three, but no, I guess there's two folders. Uh, clients and schemas. 
the clients folder has an ID for each machine that you have syncing up to mobile me. And then schemas is what you're looking for, John, but it's not really what you're looking for. Uh, you'll see in schemas, you've got folders essentially for each uh, thing that's syncing. So the one you're looking for is com.apple.bookmarks. But the files that are in there are the uh, they're they're labeled with a number and then .clog. And these are change logs. So what it's storing out there is the files required to rebuild your bookmarks if they're sent back through the pipe of sync services, either to your, you know, your iPhone or to your Mac or to whatever. Uh, this is how it works. So the file itself, there is no place on mobile me where your bookmarks are stored as a single file, at least not that I know of, uh, but it's these change logs that when mobile me goes to sync, what it does is, and this is interesting. We've talked about this before, but it's always, it's always worth a refresher. Uh, when, when, let's say, let's talk about your Safari bookmark. So you add a bookmark to Safari. The first thing that happens is Safari doesn't sync with mobile me. Safari syncs itself with sync services on your Mac. So sync services has a second copy. And in theory, sync services has exactly the same data that is out on mobile me. Uh, and it's stored in a similar way. And then what happens is once Safari syncs with sync services, then sync services goes out and makes sure it's in sync with mobile me. If there's changes that come back from mobile me, then sync services, once it's finished, it turns around and hands those back up to Safari. And the same is true of all the other apps and, and things that, uh, that sync with it. So your Mac actually first syncs with itself. And then this, this one common data store syncs out to mobile me. And this is why apps like BusyCal uh, can quote unquote read your iCal database. They're not actually reading from iCal. What they're doing is they are syncing with sync services on your Mac and seeing all that same data. So when you make a change to iCal, uh, it saves that out to sync services. And then BusyCal notices that sync services has been changed. So the change is pushed out to BusyCal and vice versa. So that that's kind of how that whole mess. And it is a mess uh, is is organized. So that's probably more of an answer than you want to jump. But again, I think it's always no, that's exactly that what I well, you answer my question, which is where does it put all this stuff? Yeah. So yeah. the answer is both in the cloud, but also locally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a tech note about this. It, it says, you know, there's a sync services folder on your Mac as well. And, and there's mm -hmm. a tech note out there that basically says, and it uses these words, uh, avoid the sync services, avoid changing the sync services folder, uh, like a swarm of bees or, or something along those lines. <laughs> it, it's, you know, it, they, they warn you if you want to start mucking around in here, it's not going to end well. You don't know what mm. you're doing. And frankly, even if you think you know what you're doing, you're still going to get it wrong, you know, because it, it, there's just so much else that it relies on. It's, you know, it's, it's a big mm. house of cards and you don't want to pull one out from the middle. So can't touch this. <laughs> I think that's a perfect opportunity to, don't uh, touch this. to bring the band in. <laughs> We will do cool stuff found next week, folks. Uh, so we have uh, we have quite a few things in the queue, but man, I you know we love doing that. So send it in, and we'll uh, we'll pile them on and see what we can do for the show. Mm -hmm. You can call us uh, if you have cool stuff found, or of course questions, tips, comments to two zero six 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 geek, which is oh everybody knows four <laughs> three. 
1-800-273-8835. But you can not only call us, you can email us, Dave. And I would say if you want to email us, you should probably send an email to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. That's feedback at MacGeekGab.com? Well, no, I have to correct you. I, I said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. <laughs> and if, of course, you're a premium subscriber, you can send them into premium at MacGeekGab.com as well. Uh, you can Skype to MacGeekGab, but that's... We really don't recommend that. If you if you have the ability to Skype, you probably have the ability to record an audio comment and just email it. And uh, to be perfectly frank, the quality is so much better when you do that. So, uh, yep. so please head down that path if you can. But if you have to Skype it, we will take it and uh, employ all the audio processing power at our fingertips. And I, I mean that both. <laughs> I, I, I mean that exactly as it sounds. I will do everything that I can with my fingertips here to affect it. But ah. we're not, but we're not going to run it through sound soap and do all sorts of other crazy things. We will attempt to re-EQ and maybe some compression helps and that's about as good as it's going to get. Pretty much. Uh, Michael Johnston does the This Week in iPhone podcast and also converts this to AAC for you and for us. Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com provides all the bandwidth to get the podcast from us to you and the podcast marketplace this month includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebones Software, Text Expander and Text Expander Touch from Smile on My Mac, Notebook from Circus Ponies, and GoToAssist.com slash Gab for GoToAssist Express from Citrix, all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. We're good to go, right, John? Yeah. All right, let's get out of here. We'll see you next week, folks. Really? Oh, we get a break? I <laughs> know. I get a break? You get a break? I know. Maybe we'll do the next one on video. Just for fun. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Fun. That's the fine fun.